CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group CEE Special Edition Education for a Brighter Future Hello everyone, my name is Rinka Burazer from Croatia. I'm a student of history at the University of Zagreb. Hi, I'm Carlotta Rohrbach. I'm from Germany and I study currently Economics of Globalization and European Integration at the University of Bari in Italy. Hi, I'm Samira Radoncic. I'm from Montenegro and I studied law at the University of Rome, La Sapienza. Hello, I'm Jelena Kulikin from Moldova and I'm studying ecological chemistry at the Institute of Chemistry. And I'm Thomas Dentant, I'm from Belgium and I study public administration at KU Leuven. In our group we discussed uh, on how education can influence a brighter future, actually how role of research can influence policy making. We tried to answer some questions that have been emerging in all of our countries all over Europe such as, you know, how to use innovative ideas from students to overcome super wicked problems such as climate change, how to break the elites from special entrances to very uh, prestigious colleges, universities all across Europe, such as College of Europe, how to redirect research to issues that are really important for the society in whole, how to counterbalance the lobby power of big industries that are influencing policy making through, of course, research, how to correct wrong information. And also we mentioned one of the most important things that we've been seeing and we've been witnessing across the region is democracy backsliding, which is partially based on society being misinformed by politicians and these politicians discrediting science and this is what we'll be tackling in our podcast now. Yeah, and so when we think about these issues, we kind of thought about where this might come from in the EU, as the EU is really making sure that it stands out from all over the globe with its values, with its ambitions, with equality, or at least trying to uh, create equality amongst its citizens and um, yeah, so elite persistence in general shouldn't be a problem. But when we when we look at the uh, at the framework in the EU that we're living in, then yeah, as we see, the College of Europe is very hard to access, for example. And why do we see this elite persistence and presence? Well, it's on the one hand we figure due to a high amount of costs. So costs are a problem for yeah not financially um, as stable families for sure but it's not only the costs from the financial perspective but it's also the information advantage that the elite has compared to normal people everyday people the real eu citizens and the network so the network we figured is a really important thing that you need to be part of the policy making in the eu which is said from the perspective that the eu tries to achieve equality amongst all citizens then we already stressed the issue that uh, policymakers are not really relying on science, even though in the EU we have the ambition to rely on facts and to be liberal. And for liberalism, we need facts and we need science. And so why don't we see the reliance on science in the EU? Well, and our idea was that in general, we have a problem with trust in science and the access in science. And we have problems in, with lobbying power in the EU as well as yeah, all over the world. 
And this is due to, on the one hand, transparency issues we figured. So people don't really understand where the science is coming from, how science is being produced. And uh, yeah, this is no magic. This is um, something that also in the EU is a problem that people think science is not reliable. And also the science is not really making advertisement for itself. So sometimes people don't even know that there is a scientific opinion on certain issues. Meanwhile, there is one. <laughs> and then also what we figured is really a problem is that knowledge remains unused. What we see in universities that people write papers and people yeah, do their master thesis, do, I don't know, their bachelor thesis, just write something and then it remains in the archives of the university and no one will ever look at it again. So there's really lost knowledge, which could be used to tackle the super wicked problems that we have because climate change requires innovation and innovation relies on very genuine ideas, which apparently we feel in the EU are getting lost in archives. Yes, and some of the possible solutions that we identified uh, as a group and that we find really relevant for the mentioned topics are um, definitely a more direct channel between policymakers and think tanks or universities in order to foster the exchange of ideas because as we mentioned the ideas are not really coherently used so the civil society should also participate in shaping and let's say implementing the decisions and uh, at the level of the policy making more paid internships also is something that is really uh, needed in order to involve youth in the policy making process in order to make these and more uh, efficient which we believe can be uh, achieved by including uh, young people and giving them the opportunity to share their ideas and to be directly involved in the process of shaping the, the, the policies. And also another solution would be if there is enough qualification or we sometimes have overqualified people who would like to get into policymaker or do they still stay in their search area. And also it's regaining trust of people in science. How do we achieve that? Do we include citizens into science? So there will be a perspective of participatory science from usual people from different countries. And uh, I would like to mention uh, one example is um, in several countries there is an initiative on uh, plastic pirates who involves people around the different levels of education and different ages to tackle this uh, problem in a participatory uh, mode and also how do we educate citizens do we give them access to different uh, programs to educate themselves or do we offer solution to educate them through formal education or maybe where it's uh, easier to go through informal uh, ways of education so they can understand if science is fun or it is the place they would like to be. And to just go a bit back on what we were talking about earlier with uh, lost research, maybe it would be a good idea if we are, uh, manage to convince many students that have just done their master thesis or even a PhD, etc., to send their research to those who might have a, an advantage in using it. 
So for example, a lovely story that came our way was about a thesis on how to recycle more efficiently on uh, certain islands that was sent to certain island municipalities, etc. And apparently had good effects. So that's something as a generation we should see as a quite a useful thing to do. Now, uh, that goes more into the territory of uh, citizen initiatives, cooperations between the government and citizens themselves to tackle certain wicked issues or smaller issues even. For example, air pollution in certain streets that can be done at a municipal level or even at a regional level. For example, in Belgium, something like that happened that really had significant results. So that's something that, I mean, we should really applaud that if that's uh, more widely used. I mean, it's an example of participative uh, democracy, so we need to include all parts of society. And that's really something that's probably a long-term goal, because you can't do that from one day to the other. But it's something we should strive towards, yes, and that would probably also make Europe more uh, significant when it comes to the idea of, uh, yes, we really are the continent of uh, human rights and democracy, local democracy and high levels of democracy. Hi and welcome to CEE, Central Europe Explained. You have just listened to our discussion with Srinka, Carlota, Samra, Elena and Thomas, all participants of the 17th DRC Summer School about the future of academia, held in Vienna in the summer of 2022. A lot of good points and observations. The discussion ended with an emphasis on Europe being the continent of human rights and democracy. However, we have been witnessing all over the world, including the whole Europe, a backslide of democracies over the past decades. This is a movement that fastened up, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak. In an article called Learning from the Virus, published in June 2020, the writer and philosopher Paul B. Preciado mentioned Michel Foucault as being, and I'm quoting here, the first philosopher of history to die from complications resulting from the acquired immunodeficiency virus who left us with some of the most effective tools of considering the political management of the epidemic. Ideas that, in this atmosphere of rampant and contagious disinformation, are like cognitive protective equipment. End of quote here. What we have observed is that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic fueled mistrust towards authorities and science. But in my view, this tendency is not completely new. Just think of anti-vaccination movements. They have been active for quite a long time before, and which is why some diseases re-emerged, for example, measles. Social isolation and the consequences of the pandemic, such as the unemployment, increased frustration and Many people uh, became more susceptible to extreme opinions and voices. It is not that um, all of those people had no trust in science at first, not at the very beginning of the pandemic. If you think about it, they also complied with the rules at the very beginning, they stayed home. But the longer the situation lasted, the more um, science-based evidence fell off on deaf ears. So, nothing new here, actually. But it shows us that the political management of pandemics and the communication of correct information, especially science, are bound together. And one of the biggest providers of science, knowledge and tools for policy making is academia. 
Still, academia and governance often appear as two separate entities. On one hand, we have the one sitting in their decision-making chairs, and on the other hand, are the one in their closed labs and universities. My name is Emma Hunterbury, and I'm producing this podcast. I'm also a research associate at the IDM. Hi, I'm Malvina Talik. I'm a research associate at the IDM as well. Prior to that, I have also worked at the Polish Academy of Sciences, where one of my tasks was popularization of science. Marvina, so nice to be here with you today. Nice to be with you here too. Uh, before to start, I would like to ask you what comes to your mind when we talk about this divide between science and policymaking, or about this three-cornered structure between science and academia, then policymaking, and last but not least, civil society. Well, thanks for this question, Emma. Let me uh, respond to it indirectly. So to start with, politicians need to rely on science or at least be aware of academic and scientific findings in order to, to make uh, informed and reliable decisions. Uh, this may also mean taking unpopular decisions uh, that will, however, uh, be of the profit for the society uh, in a long-term perspective. So let's you know, think about the climate change as an example. Um, however, what we should also keep in mind is that uh, it is politicians and politics that enables and finances or impedes and starves science. So it has an impact on what areas are given more attention. Thank you very much for this input. First, I would like to follow on what Srinka, Kalota, Samra, Helena and Thomas highlighted, which is the need of science for a brighter future and the possibilities for research to influence better policymaking. Going from there, Malvina and I will discuss this issue and especially the need of making better use of science and of bringing it closer to the rest of the population, to foster democracy, and they are talking about participative democracy especially. So once again, we also have conducted some anonymous interviews during this TRC summer school, so please do not be surprised if you hear unknown voices. So first, let's talk about the connection between science and democratic backsliding. And to make it clear, we do not now mean to strengthen the cliché of a slow and boring academic. Am I right? No, yeah, yeah, I strongly oppose this view that academics or academia and science are too slow. Um, it is true, however, that academia and politics have a different pace, a different modus operandi. Um, but uh, thorough and reliable research requires time because uh, jumping to conclusions may do more harm than good, if you think about it. Politics, on the other hand, is very high-paced. Politicians are expected to react fast, to provide information, and to provide them in an easy-to-grasp way. So, in a way, those two worlds are apart, but they are apart for good reasons. And indeed, what they need to figure out and many did quite well during the pandemic, is to communicate with one another. Science provides information that politicians need to make informed decisions in the context. Absolutely, absolutely. And also before, Emma, you, you have mentioned democratic backsliding. And in cases of countries that 
experience democratic backsliding, the relationship between academia and policymakers can be uh, more tense. And then various scenarios, relations between the two come in play. So uh, there are countries uh, where, despite a backlash on democratic institutions, the academia and science retain their autonomy because the academic community is still influential to, to be openly attacked by the politicians. Another scenario is when acad academia retains its autonomy but uh, the funding for some research uh, is withdrawn as soon as the opportunity presents itself. And in this way, uh, policymakers can uh, limit uh, the scope of research or of some areas of research. And finally, there are those cases where academia becomes a political of uh, policymakers. Uh, and in, by doing so, they can implement their own ideas and promote some research more than other. But in this case, it's very interesting to me to think actually how and why there, there is then this big distrust towards science and academia. What's your take on, on this point? I think there are very many, there are many um, explanations of that fact. Since we are talking about politics, I would say that um, politicians also played um, a part in this. We could have observed it during the pandemic. Uh, where poli some politicians would um, undermine the trust in science and present their own opinions as facts. And as one late US senator once stated, you can have your own opinions, but you can't have your own facts. Uh, and by doing so, politicians uh, confuse people um, who didn't know whom to trust anymore. They didn't have the same knowledge as scientists or the same insights uh, in the current affairs as politicians. Um, so politicians should not assume the role of scientists, they should not meddle too much in the research process. Sure, they might give priority to some areas and finance them more, them more but this is also a double-edged sword and it affects some disciplines more than others. Um, so for example, looking at social sciences that I have more uh, background in, for example, independent research in gender studies and history is crucial at the moment to debunk certain myths that are circulating. But in many countries of our region, uh, gender studies are labeled as a biased ideology and not an academic discipline. Some governments blame the demographic crisis that we are experiencing on the so-called gender ideology. But if they actually look at the data presented by gender studies, they would find many explanations uh, for the status quo, for this demographic crisis, as well as the recommendations and solutions, but they choose to look away. Well, this is actually very raging information. You're telling me here I was not aware of this point. I think it proved that politicians should not question reliable science when it does not match their opinion. They should use academia indeed, much more as an advisory body which many do so. Science needs funding and this comes also from state. And saying this makes the statement even clearer. Policymakers desperately need science. And as Carlotta mentioned before, the policies making already rely on science, but it seems that this is slowly fading away. Science and policymakers have to create synergies and common ground of work and implementation of new area of solutions. Especially acknowledging the extremely fast 
progress of innovation, taking into perspective the multiple challenges ahead of us, science must be a long-term integration in the policy-making processes. Absolutely, and when you think about phenomena like the pandemic or climate change, um, there has been enough evidence uh, which has not been secret to either the society nor the decision makers uh, about it. So we know about it, we, are, we have evidence for it. But uh, climate change is also a phenomenon that can't be tackled over one legislative period. Uh, and the d decisions uh, which would help to counter it might be unpopular. And politically they might not pay off in some countries. So for many politicians, cooperation with science on that matter uh, ends as soon as an electoral campaign starts. And I think um, we also witness the crisis of authorities. Um, and this goes in a way hand in hand with polarization of the society, at least in my view. So even if uh, data and information is available and it is made public, some groups uh, will not listen. Uh, they will also look away, um, they will stay in their own information bubble and rely on their own so-called experts and scientists. And you know, very often those experts, those scientists are really experts, but in some other field. So a dentist does not make a great historian or an expert in history and climate. Um, there is a reason why education and some professions takes time and must be followed by necessary research and professional experience. And to overcome the polarization itself, we need to talk to one another, even if it often is, um, is an excruciating task for both sides. But then thinking about what you just said about talking to one another, so having this, this communication, which then therefore would foster science in the scope of policy making. So communicating between science and this policy making and also the civil society, it means that we need to rebuild somehow trust in science. So here again, we can reflect on what we have been witnessing since the outbreak of this COVID-19 pandemic. Did this crisis foster a societal distrust towards science? Are we currently witnessing a break in the face, which would also lead us to complete failure in solving this urgent worldwide challenging, such as climate change, as you said a few times already, Malvina, but also food and water insecurity or economic stagnation. But this being said, um, we figured that, so the main point is this communication, talking to one another. Then we can wonder how to tell true stories that everybody can understand. And for this, how can we share knowledge by using science better and making it accessible to all? So let me ask you a question whether you see any knowledge sharing obstacles, either personal or organizational, occurring on the EU level, which hamper the EU policy Uh, making output or the EU policy making process? I think the most evident thing is uh, the lack of uh, trust. Uh, 
between the citizens and the EU policy making. So I don't really think that any organizational or uh, or personal barriers uh, go into mix. I think that EU actually does well in uh, I mean getting rid of these kind of uh, barriers. But if there is uh, no trust between uh, uh, these groups, I mean, you can't really expect any knowledge sharing. Even uh, the um, scientific field is trying, or even uh, the policymakers, when they're trying to hear, I mean, if there is uh, no common trust, you can't really expect any any real impact. So, if it was up to me, the main thing I would uh, I would really go for is setting up uh, a real communication to set up a mutual trust between uh, different groups of stakeholders, and that might stimulate some uh, knowledge sharing in the future. It was a very interesting point. I would also say many experts are not given the floor, uh, maybe because they're not necessarily very medial personalities uh, or because they can't explain things in a couple of sentences very concisely. But maybe this is also because too little attention in academia is given to, to collaboration with media or to preparing scientists to media appearances. Um, this is a competence which many have to learn for sure. Um, but if you want more academia um, and more impact of academia on politics and everyday life, then we also have to listen to what scientists have to say. You know, we can't expect them to accelerate the research which has to be thorough. So listening and having this trust and communication then seems to be the major element of a symbiotic relationship between science and policy making. And for that trust to be earned, it is only possible if science, policy making and civil society communicate also on a similar level. So again, I'm wondering here, how we can tell to the public scientific stories? How can we share the narratives? And should scientific communication be simplified? Indeed, science is not for the few. Everybody should be able to get access to it and to understand it. In this sense, language is central and science should be communicated in the way that the general public can also reach and understand. Yeah, if I can make a point here. <laughs> I agree, as it was mentioned before, that um, the quote that people don't know uh, that there is a scientific opinion on, on certain issues. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, the information is very often already there. All that we have to do uh, is to, to, to Google, to search for it, to verify sources. Um, because we don't live anymore in the times, you know, where we could rely only on newspapers, print and encyclopedias. Uh, we actually have an opposite problem. We deal with an information flood. You know, we are bombed with information, um, a, number, a lot of information every single day. And very often it's algorithms uh, that decide for us what we see. And the thing with algorithm is that um, it does not necessarily spread scientific information as much as it does spread some emotional news or even fake news. I completely agree. I think the point here when we talk about reach and when you say that the information is already there is most that the language it is used to be communicated should be able to be understood by a broader public. But oh. as you said, I think a big point is also this flood of information and also the fake news which goes along. And to this extent, there is this Austrian project 
um, Europe gegen Covid-19. Am I saying it right in German? Europa gegen Covid-19? Europa. So yeah, it aims to use fact and humor against fake news to communicate on the Covid-19 realities during the pandemic. So here it was about proving fact-based and indisciplinary education content about myth and fake news. So the project then promotes a positive European sense of community. And mainly it also addresses itself in a regional and across border manners as such challenges should not only be tackled individually by countries, but rather regionally, because the pandemic does not have mm. any border. It makes mm. no sense. Yeah. But well, here, let's listen to the input of Sebastian Schaeffer, Managing Director of IDM. I think dialogue is, is very important that we open up. We must have much more discussions with the broader public, yeah, less academic conferences, more discussions with the broader public and uh, especially formats where we make use of what we've learned over the past two years. And if we use this possibility more and if we make it more attractive, less the, the, the classical uh, discussion between some experts and then maybe questions from the audience that always come from the same people. But bring more interesting, innovative formats that engages a broader audience, we have it a little bit easier to communicate also scientific findings. So that was a very interesting point, but on the other hand, despite better communication and connection between science and the broader public, there must be strong direct bridges between decision makers and science. As a solid ground for evidence-based solution making, we must embrace a long-lasting dialogue between the policy makers and the scientific sectors, especially if we witness this imbalance the ongoing role of science and research in decision-making and also with this East-West divide, which is still there all the time, building bridges will lead to more equality among the research community and so to a better way of communicating scientific outcomes. Yeah, as you, Emma, mentioned, already much earlier, politicians need science and innovation. There's no doubt about it. Um, but what we should also consider is international science and international cooperation uh, in science. You know, learning from, from one another, sharing what we already know, to be able to grow together, uh, not just in, you know, in the States, or to be able to grow internationally as a, as a region, as a, as a group of states. It isn't so that there's nothing happening in this regard. And you mentioned the West, East-West divide. I would say that in Central and Eastern Europe, there is a huge drive to receive ERC grants. Those are huge grants given by the European Research Council. And the requirements are constructed in such a way that, uh, first of all, the project has to be very innovative for the given discipline, but also easy to explain to a broader audience, to a broader public because people who are in, in juries are from very different fields. So they have to be able to 
understand what um, what the person who wants to receive this grant is talking about. And also those projects have to be as international as possible. Thank you. Well, okay, actually I was not aware of this and that's super interesting. Um, but again, I guess there is still this need of reforming and uh, increasing inclusion, diversity and better communication to foster open science and access to research. Ultimately, a remaining key point is finding the ways researchers can reclaim their legitimate space in fact-based decision-making, especially given the increase of this anti-scientific stand in policy and society. So here we ask Sebastian the question, how to do so? That's a very difficult question. I would say that we should, on the one hand side, try to engage more in a sense that we need not only to find results and then communicate them in our bubble, but work much more on scientific communication. Um, on the other hand, it's also important that we sort of reclaim the age of reason in a sense that this distrust in science and research that is perpetuated also by decision makers. On the forefront, for instance, uh, Donald Trump and the likes needs to stop. We need to defend science and research as the foundation of a modern democratic value-based society. This is a very strong statement. Science and research play a big role in the foundation of modern, democratic and value-based society. This is actually the red line or narrative to think when we look for ways of connecting these three corners of this triangle between science, policymaking and civil society. In order to do so, we should probably turn the problem around and start of rebuilding roots of trust. Bridges and reachable communication have to be created between general public and policymakers. Starting from the bottom of the issue, we would bring the right answers here. Any last words you'd like to bring up? Well, Emma, I can um, echo what you have uh, just uh, said, but I'm also an optimist. I think that there is a light in the, in the tunnel and a lot of scientists address the civil society directly and popularize science through their social media channels, through YouTube channels. All in my, my home country, and some of, such, of those scientists became even, I would say, scientific celebrities, but in a good sense of the word. Uh, we talked before about uh, bringing um, information in an easy-to-grasp way to the general public. Well, uh, Polish Academy of Sciences does regularly publish information on um, current, uh, debated, uh, and even polarizing topics uh, in order to explain them to a broader public and to lower those tensions. So I think that they do really a good, good job. It's just a matter of people uh, willing to uh, follow such uh, posts, such information. So we just have to take this first step. We have to, to look for it. 
And last but not least, uh, as a civil society, we can hold our politicians accountable for their ignorance. You can stigmatize such behaviors when they confuse opinions with their own opinions with facts or they take their own opinions for facts. And we can think twice uh, when casting a vote, you know, uh, we can make science great again. Um, okay, there's one more thing I would like actually to end. Uh, and uh, I think Carlotta mentioned that uh, a lot of uh, research done by students um, gets lost in the archives. Exactly, yeah. She meant master thesis or bachelor thesis. There is actually a way uh, to, to change it. Uh, there are a couple of publishing houses, at least in Austria and Germany, that uh, offer to publish master thesis for free. Um, of course, you have to meet certain requirements, but this is also uh, a way of, you know, saving your own work from being forgotten. With that being said, thanks for listening to CEE, Central Europe Explained. We hope that you will join us again very soon. And please tell everyone you know to subscribe and review the show. It really helps us to make the podcast community grow. So you enjoyed this podcast? Then tune into another CEE episode and subscribe to the IDM podcast series on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Acast, or elsewhere you get your podcast. And also have a look at the rest of our work on our website www.idm.at For any feedback or podcast collaboration, feel free to contact me at e.honteberry at idm.at. The email is in the description below. This was CEE, Central Europe Explained, a podcast series produced by the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe, powered by Elster Group. With the ongoing participation of Daniela Paiden, Marvin Atalik, Daniel Martinek, and Sebastian Schaeffer. Production and editing, Emma Hunterberry. Proofreading, Jack Gill. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institut für die Danube Region und Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise.